0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm
1: Dublina Chakraborty.
0: And before the holidays, we recorded an episode on a few of the great underground cities of the world. And a lot of folks have written in since then suggesting other, ci- we knew that would happen, cities that right. we had missed. Um, but one in particular was actually already on our list for a full length episode about underground world of London. And London, of course, has many potential underground stories, but the one that we're going to be covering today stems from a popular listener suggestion in its own right, and that is the Great Stink.
1: And you might be wondering if that is a metaphor for something, and we're here to tell you, no, it is not. It actually refers to a particularly warm Victorian summer when the stench of London's sewage filled Thames got very, very bad. So, (laughs) this podcast is about a bad smell.
0: (laughs) So, the stink, though, you know, we're not going to just talk about it if that was all it was. People remembered it being a particularly Uh, stinky summer. Some pretty major changes came because it just got that bad. Uh, Some radical improvements to an outdated sewer network, some public health improvements. And it also helped change the face of 19th century London and put into place systems that actually last to this day, something I found particularly remarkable about this story.
1: But first, let's just be frank. Yes, the waste issue in 19th century London had a lot of components. Industrial chemicals, lie from the city's many laundries, butchered animals, all things that make for a stinky river with no fish and no birds. But the big issue was human waste. So before we get to the Great Stink and and talk about how that came about, we really have to discuss how people handled their business, (laughs) should we say, leading up to the Victorian era and during that era.
0: So according to Smithsonian's past Imperfect blog, London has actually had a sewage system since Roman times. And it was added to, of course, it was expanded during the medieval period, but pretty haphazardly. The sewers were built and presided over by different districts in the city. So there was no uniformity between them. There was certainly no grand plan. There was no map even of like your city's entire sewer system. More sewers were added on in the 17th century, but this network as haphazard as it was wasn't even meant for waste in the first place it was it was for storm sewer runoff even though we have to assume due to the medieval habit of dumping your chamber pot out the window or into the gutter or simply going outside probably ensured there was some waste in the sewer system but that was not its intention it was for runoff and of course that Rainwater could safely enter the urban tributaries of the Thames, which, side note here, too, a lot of those are now called the Lost Rivers, according to the Council for British Archaeology, because they're not rivers anymore. They're not tributaries of the Thames. They're underground covered sewers that lead to it.
1: So, okay, you're probably wondering, though, what actually happened to Londoners' Waste if it didn't hit the sewers? Well, most made it into cesspits, which were hidden under or behind homes. And these cesspits, they'd be filled gradually with the contents of chamber pots. So when your cesspit was full, you'd simply hire a night soil man who'd come out with a cart and load up the contents to be used north of the city as an agricultural fertilizer. But it's easy to see why this system eventually went wrong.
0: Yes. (laughs) For one thing, cesspits, you know, it's not the... It's not a a modern system like you might have um, now if you weren't connected to the sewer network. They leaked sometimes and they would send raw waste into the groundwater and eventually mix in with the Thames which was where Londoners drew their water from. So that's problem number one. But the big problem came with the city growing too much, too fast.
1: Right. Again, according to the Council for British Archaeology, London's population exploded from not even 1 million people in 1801 to nearly 3 million in 1861. Outlying villages were absorbed by the city. Farmland or green space was built up and packed with new residents. And all the problems of overcrowding, including unsafe housing, pollution, overfull cemeteries, all those things just became worse.
0: And even well before that 1861 population figure, there were already more than 200,000 cesspits in London by 1810. So certainly getting to the point where it's too many cesspits to empty, to cart out of town, to use as fertilizer in a safe way, not like a gross dumping ground sort of way. No pun intended there. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, clearly, clearly things were getting out of hand. And around the same time that the cesspit count was starting to creep beyond 200,000 and the population was still steadily climbing, London's sewage system had another major blow, and that was the adoption of the flushing toilet. And uh, last summer, just as a side note to to this um, information about the flushing toilet, uh, I read Lucy Worsley's book about the history of the home last summer. It's called If Walls Could Talk, and it's filled with all sorts of interesting details about the rooms of the modern home. Um, but one of the most interesting facts in that bathroom section was that the flushing toilet was not a recent invention. I mean, you, you're probably thinking, okay, this is we're talking about the early 19th century right now. That sounds... About when you would imagine the flushing toilet to have been invented. Um, Britain's first flushing toilet, though, really came about in Elizabethan times.
1: That was really surprising to me. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually invented by a man named Sir John Harrington and installed in his home and in one of Elizabeth's palaces. But these cistern connected chamber pots had some design flaws and didn't really catch on. Some of the problems were stink producing D pipes, daily water priming, lots of water use and leaks. And they were only occasionally installed because of that, always in fine homes. And most folks continued the portable chamber pot system instead. But by the early 19th century, redesigns plus the right PR power behind (laughs) it, the right PR guys promoting these things, made the flushing toilet or water closet, whichever way you want to refer to it finally take off. And unfortunately, though, the waste disposal method of a water closet, which is obviously very water intensive, didn't mesh well with the cesspit setup. There was just too much stuff there. Yeah,
0: I mean, we don't need to go into the grisly details here, but you can imagine. I mean, if you have a system that's set up for mostly solid waste, suddenly it's um, not so solid anymore. It's not going to work very well as night soil and as something that is portable anymore. It's just sewage. It's just gross. And there's way too much of it in London. So people began to connect their drains to the city sewer system, the same sewer system that was meant for storm water and that drained into the Thames. So by 1815, it was permissible to do so. By 1848, it was mandatory. You had to connect your drains. Uh, The Metropolitan Commission of Sewers even ordered that all the cesspits be closed. So there wasn't another option. So, of course, there were some problems with this. Uh... For one thing, a hard rain could mean that your storm sewer connected drains now backed up with raw sewage into your home, which is really terrible, and I don't want to talk about that anymore. But the bigger problem was that all of those old sewer systems did drain into the Thames, where Londoners, as we keep on saying, driving this point home, got their water from. According to the Smithsonian, by the 1840s, the Thames... Saw more than 150 million tons of waste dumped into it. So problems, problems. To really. say the
1: least. Unfortunately, though, it wasn't until the 1850s that people really began to understand germ theory and that diseases like cholera were contracted through contaminated water. And I think you and Katie covered kind of a related Topic to this, right? Yeah, one very closely related. Uh the
0: story of Dr. John Snow and his ghost map and um it, it just had to do with the cholera outbreaks that London experienced in the eighteen hundreds and and his attempts to uh discover what was really behind him. I mean just to give you some figures here. These are serious outbreaks of, of disease. The first major outbreak was in 1831, 1832. 31,000 people died in Great Britain. Uh, the next outbreak in 1848 and 9, 54,000 died. And in the third outbreak in 1853 and 4, again, 31,000 people died in Great Britain, uh, many of them Londoners and snow made his discovery his his discovery that cholera was something that could be um transported through water and that you could drink water that looked perfectly clean and and catch this this disease from it uh it seems pretty obvious to us now <laughs> but it ran completely contrary to the popular scientific thought of the time.
1: Yeah, so much so that it took snow years to convince his peers that cholera was contracted through water. Instead, most people believed that diseases were spread through bad air or miasma. So a disease-filled slum didn't necessarily need clearly separated sewage and water systems. It just needed better air so or some so kind people of thought.
0: ventilation system in there would protect you from contracting cholera even if you were drinking this gross Thames water. right? Um, So this incorrect belief, though, ironically made the idea of an updated, really super connected throughout London sewer system a little bit dangerous sounding. Because if you think about it from that perspective, drains, bad air spreading, Could your home's drains be allowing bad air in from the other part of the city from other parts of the cities? Lucy Worsley, again, even talks about people keeping plugs on their drains at all times so that nothing would... Come give them cholera from it. Uh, The belief in miasma, though, which lasted long after Snow's debunking of it, unfortunately, makes the
1: eventual great stink seem all the more significant and probably all the more terrifying for people. Right. It was 1858 in London, and London had experienced its hottest summer on record. The stench of the Thames became completely unbearable. For those who were by the river, it was Practically suffocating. The best accounts of the stink come from members of Parliament who were holed up riverside. And according to the Council for British Archaeology on June 7th, one MP complained quote, It was a notorious fact that honorable gentlemen sitting in the committee rooms and in the library were utterly unable to remain there in consequence of the stench which arose from the river.
0: Eleven days later, the Times of London reported that, quote, a few members, bent on investigating the matter to its very depth, I like that it's eleven days later at this point, ventured into the library, but they were instantaneously driven to retreat, each man with a handkerchief to his nose.
1: And most famously, the MPs attempted to block the smell by soaking the curtains in chloride of lime, but that... Didn't even help a bit.
0: No, it was it was out of the league of chloride of lime, and uh, interestingly, there had been a body established to handle these sewer problems. It wasn't like people were just ignoring this issue year after year as the population grew and things got worse and worse. The Metropolitan Board of Works had been set up, but unfortunately, nobody had bothered to see that the Board of Works had funding to complete, massive public works projects, like building a new sewer system. But now, with the members of parliament suffocating in their chambers and grasping handkerchiefs to their noses and soaking their curtains in lime, uh, things got fast-tracked.
1: Prioritized. So by July 8th, a bill passed granting the Board of Works power to borrow and levy money for an updated sewer system. So they were finally... Moving into the the future, yes. Over the next seven years, the Board of Works and Chief Engineer Joseph Bazalgette developed a system that toted the waste of London outside of town and away from the river that ran through the city's heart. As a testament to its design, much of that system is still used today.
0: Yeah, a point we, we made earlier that's one of the more impressive aspects of this story. According to Port Cities London, Basil Jet's plan did run contrary to a lot of the ideas of the day or a lot of the possible solutions for, for this issue, which, uh, at, at the time ran more toward still still building a sewer system, but instead of pumping it outside of of town toward the river, pumping it outside of town and still using it as fertilizer, kind of in the old night soil way. But Bazalgette realized that this was an inefficient idea. There were just too many people in the city. There was too much sewage. And the agricultural areas were, of course, getting further and further away as the city grew. So his idea was to continue dumping the sewage into the Thames, but to do so away from the city, uh, downstream from where people in London, at least, got their water.
1: The first major part of his plan involved intercepting sewers, and these ran along both sides of the river, connecting to the old sewers that once drained right into the river. And from there, the intercepting sewers carried their contents east by gravity to one of two pumping stations, one on either side. And these raised the sewage to outfall sewers that would then carry the contents off to reservoirs at high tide. The outfalls would be emptied into the Thames, downriver of London.
0: So the outfall sewers and the reservoirs were just huge. Uh, The reservoirs are a little, again, kind of horrifying to think about. But the outfall sewers, just to give you some numbers on these, the northern outfall sewer was more than four miles long the southern outfall sewer ran almost entirely underground and uh, th- these are still considered impressive engineering feats even even if they were built today, they would still be in, in that league. Um, Basil J- was also able to accomplish a lot of this this work uh, in a very tucked away, sort of out of sight uh, manner. You know, these weren't just all sewers running in clear sight. And the way he was able to, to do that was by building embankments along the marshy riverbanks of the Thames. And that's probably the most visible reminder of his work. You don't see a lot of sewers, of course, but uh, the park-like embankments in London uh, meant that central streets didn't have to be torn up, buildings didn't have to be torn up to build these massive sewer pipes. It reclaimed land that was was not being used. And it also hid new parts of the London Underground, the Metropolitan Railway at the time. You know, if you're tearing all this up and laying pipes in lay a, a tube station in as well.
1: So according to Worsley, Jet's work resulted in more than 1,000 miles of sewer. It also used about 318 million bricks, and it allowed for the widespread adoption of the flushing toilet. Uh, just as an aside, the 1851 Great Exhibition also helped with that too, though. Many people got out to the exhibition to try to flush a toilet for the first well, time. Well,
0: they, they just, you know while they were out seeing the other marvels at the Great Exhibition, the facilities happened to right. include fleshing toilets, and they got to try them for the first time, uh, see how one of them works, since probably mm-hmm. not too many people were going to Elizabeth's old, old palace. Uh, one of the starkest signs, though, I mean, those are impressive numbers, of course, but one of the starkest signs of Basil Jet's success was London's fourth and final major cholera outbreak, which took place in 1866. It it was mostly limited to the east end of London, which was the one part of town that hadn't yet been hooked up to the new sewer system. So clearly John Snow's ideas about how cholera spread bore out with that and, and also Bazalgette's ideas about sanitation. Uh, still, though, <laughs> on that subject, sewage was still, of course, flowing directly into the Thames, just east of London. There was still no sewage treatment in place um, something that's a little striking to, to consider. And things got bad pretty pretty quickly. I mean, why wouldn't they? Near the outfalls, mud banks of sewage started to pile up. Um, sometimes there would be so much waste being discharged into the river that waiting for high tide to just whisk it all away didn't really work anymore. And um, the everything would come back upriver. So
1: (laughs) that problem didn't go unnoticed forever, though, obviously. By the 1870s, a terrible accident is what finally put it on the map. A pleasure steamer called the Princess Alice was hit by a coal ship and broken in half. The wreck occurred near Becton, which was one of the sewage reservoir sites. And though few people died in the accident, 650 died overall, most by drowning in caustic sewage, water and sludge. In 1887, treatment plants began filtering out sludge from liquid. The liquid still went into the river while the sludge was trudged out to sea on special ships where it was dumped at a spot called the Black Deep.
0: And this fact is... Maybe this takes the cake is the most surprising. This went on until 1998.
1: Yeah, that is startling. (laughs) Um,
0: Now it is, just in case you're interested in in how things played out (laughs) since then, now about half of it is burned. We're talking about London specifically. Half is burned, half is turned into agricultural fertilizer pellets, uh, kind of going back to the old night soil tradition. Uh, Also interesting, too, the uh like Becton and the other the other spots are still major waste processing areas so these their tradition of that has has continued into the 21st century um so understandably this is a pretty wild story. And it was certainly a a strange one to research with all sorts of weird things I came across, like mentions of mythical sewer pigs and queen rats. Um, But one of the strangest aspects, and I just couldn't go without bringing it up here at the end, uh, were the lives of so-called Toshers. And uh, the Smithsonian piece we mentioned a few times by Mike Dash covered the life of these sewer hunters who were documented by Henry Mayhew, a man who wrote some vignettes on Victorian London life. But they were basically guys who would go into the sewers illegally and search out useful items that may have gotten lost. (laughs) Um, It could be anything from a piece of rope to something like a treasure, you know, a lost piece of silverware, coins that had been dropped on the street and then swept into the gutter. And uh, they... We're able to make a pretty decent working class living doing this, as terrible as it may sound.
1: Yeah, well, older Toshers would know the invisible crannies where things tended to accumulate, and teams would even sometimes enter with hooks and hose to unearth their finds. So they probably came up with a good bit of stuff. He knew where to look. There were dangers, too, though, as you might imagine. Flooded storm sewers, high tide, torrents from legit sewage workers opening up sluices, and Maybe most horrifying of all, at least according to Mayhew's Tosher interviews, hordes of rats.
0: That would attack you unless you were in a group. So, again, don't want to talk about that one anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one final note though. The Great Stink got a little nod this past summer when the London Dungeon added a nose statue to the Millennium Bridge. That's the pedestrian bridge that crosses the Thames to commemorate the summer of the Stinky River and, of course, to promote its own exhibit on the subject. But I looked up some pictures of it. It is very strange. I hope it's yeah. not just photoshopped.
1: <laughs> it's quite a quite a strange sight. Yeah, it's kind of funny. And I mean, just talking about toilet history in general is kind of has a humorous aspect to it. But it's mm-hmm. not to belittle at all the significance of the impact of this event on public health. Yeah, and I think that's what makes this a
0: fascinating topic it, i do feel a little bit like i'm in third grade and we're talking toilets Poop. yeah <laughs> but um but yeah the the cholera of the sanitation and um the sanitation reforms of victorian london have always kind of fascinated me so i hadn't learned too much about this aspect of it i think um, I've, I've read more about the Housing, tenements, slums, um, the miasma in the air, all of that. Um, so it, it was neat to, to back some of that up with this below ground aspect of the story.
1: So hopefully people got something out of it as well and uh, were able to make it past some of the more unsavory parts
0: of the I hope you don't you didn't listen
1: during lunch story. Yes, <laughs> yes, agreed. For this week's Listener Mail segment, we have a few postcards to share. The first one is from listener Amanda, and she says, Sarah Dublina, this postcard comes to you from Punta Cana. Although a very tourist-driven place, I'm excited to tell you that there's a shipwreck right off its coast. I know how fascinated you guys are. The ship itself was called the Astron, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and it was bringing corn to Cuba in 1978 until a bad storm broke it apart. I was able to see its pieces from a helicopter tour. Yep, it's still there. Thank you for that, Amanda. It's a very pretty... pretty picture on the front
0: wish we were there Um, we also got a postcard from listener Audrey who sent another beautiful winter more wintry sort of postcard from Patagonia and she even said that today I listened to your podcast in the strangest and coolest place I've ever been on top of a glacier in Patagonia so that's really neat Um, another cool more old fashioned postcard I actually think it might be an antique postcard uh, that we got from Shanti and it's just a nice little horse a guy a hat fun pictures for the desk we also got some books didn't we?
1: We did I guess my admission of paying (laughs) $2.50 for an Amazon book moved several listeners which we really appreciate but we came back from the holidays and had several boxes lined up with book contributions from people.
0: Which is so kind of you guys. Uh, Michael sent us a book on Lafayette, which I thought was was pretty cool. I mean, of course, it was sent before our episode on uh, on our double agent spy who worked for Lafayette aired, but uh, more to read on him. And then also our listener, Hillary, who you guys know for sending postcards from her travels around the world. She sent us a book on her favorite violinist, Mont- Powell, plus some CDs, so we really look forward to listening to those. Yes.
1: Unfortunately, though, Sarah, I think we're going to have to listen to those CDs separately.
0: Or we'll have to have some sort of listening party on our own time.
1: Yep, yeah, because I am going to be leaving How Stuff Works to take another opportunity, which I'm really excited about. It's a, something I've been looking forward to for a while, so I'm happy to be able to do that, but very sad to be leaving how stuff works and discovery and and you in this podcast that's probably the saddest part of all because I've really enjoyed getting to know you first of all it's probably been the best part of working on this podcast we worked together before but didn't really know each other that well so you know Getting that friendship and out of it and just being able to learn so much about history over the past couple of years has been amazing.
0: And I am, of course, so happy for you and Thank really you. excited for you, but I will miss you so much. And yes, I mean, of course, the best thing is um, having gotten to make friends with you over the past few years we've been hosting together. Um, but also, I mean, really from day one, I have been in awe of your ability to pick out the most obscure, interesting (laughs) topics, and sometimes... You tell me what you're going to be researching, and I just wonder, where on earth did she <laughs> hear about that?
1: I'll never tell.
0: <laughs> you know. Dublina must have secret sources, guys. Um, but it's been so amazing getting to to work with you, and you just exposing me to so many of those stories, too. Oh, and, thanks. so worth it.
1: Well, likewise. I mean, I've learned so much from working with you. I know this is like turning into a love fest, <laughs> but seriously, you were smart and you um you really carry this podcast so it's been a pleasure to to learn from you and work with you i'm gonna miss you divlina i will miss you too but luckily we still live in the same town so we do not as much as we'll miss i mean i'll definitely miss the fans we'll Um, see what we
0: can cook up together
1: yeah we'll see what we can cook up
0: so um it's still um you know I'm sure the the podcast will be continuing in some form. Stay tuned. You know, things are in the works. So, um, look, social media, listening in.
1: There will be updates.
0: We'll, we'll catch you guys up to what's going to go down.
1: Until then, I just want to say goodbye to all the listeners of this podcast. I have so enjoyed getting to know all of you as well over the last couple years, and there are so many. I mean, obviously, we get a lot of critiques, which is you expect from doing this sort of thing anyway, but we also just get so many kind notes from people it's really moving and i'm starting to get choked up now so i better stop along (laughs) those lines but just to hear from people who listen to this podcast all over the world and the different ways that they use it in their lives um it's it's been awe-inspiring and and humbling all at the same time um so i guess that's it just thank you to all of you for listening and uh you know Maybe I'll get a chance to talk to you again in the future.
0: And I'll I'll second that, too. Uh, so, bye, Develina.
1: <laughs> bye, guys. Um, and don't forget to check out all the great content we have on our site. You can look it up at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.